1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. What? A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So it's the middle of the day. It is. It's just past lunchtime <laughs> on a work day, whatever that means now. I mean. <laughs> and uh, we are in the rector cupboard studios, the garage office of Reflector Project. And Amanda Mine is here. Hi, Amanda. Hello. And Allison Williams is here. Hey, Todd. And we're doing a tasting. Yeah, we, mm -hmm. we wanted to do an afternoon tasting. Yeah, we had some listeners say, like, you don't always do tastings anymore. You should do tastings. So, but because it's a work day, and that's not really why. We've, that's not we've why. broken this rule a ton of times. So many. Say, it has nothing to do with it. I this. think we confessed that we had a tasting in Ken the Bell's morning once. Here. Ken Bell's not here. Yes, we're missing the cupboard, cupboard master. master. So it's not alcohol. It's, um, but don't worry, it's still unhealthy. It's donuts and coffee. Yes. Mm. Yeah, we, d we decided this felt just a little master. more uh, appropriate for, for today. So uh, our, our tastings today come um, from, the donuts are from Monarch Bakery, which is a local North Vancouver bakery, this tiny little one right on Lonsdale Avenue. I'd, I tried to look it up and they're the type of place well, that doesn't wanna, have a website. No, because if you want to enter like the early 70s, you can go in there. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, or I, even like Is hole 60s. in the wall appropriate? It's, sure. it's pretty small There's and it, no it's decor. very old mm -hmm. and i mean it's become a bit of like a favorite of mine um so they've got great jelly filled donuts and custard donuts we elected old to have the glazed the classic glazed yeast so donut. you guys i've already had my donuts yes yeah. todd didn't want to have any easing because eating the noises. sound but you're going <laughs> to turn your channels down or something while we'll, you're we'll mute it so we I won't subject our listeners to hear that Fill the Fine. void while we're chewing. Because, Ellen, <laughs> where's the coffee from? Oh, the mm. coffee um, is actually, was a birthday present from my friend Victoria, who lives in Saskatoon. So she sent it from me. It is Hawaiian oh. Kona Extra Fancy Coffee. From a Saskatoon? Mm. No, I don't think so. Oh. It's just delicious Kona coffee, which felt appropriate for like tasting level. Oh, thanks, Victoria. Thank you, Victoria. So like tropical donut day. <laughs> Well, I mean, I the coffee tastes like coffee. It doesn't taste like pineapples. That's true. It's very good, though. So we have our, our tasting today, uh, courtesy of our... See, you can hear it. There we go. Um, courtesy of uh, my birthday present and a small little hole-in-the-wall bakery in North Vancouver. That The donuts are so cheap. They're like $1.60. So oh, don't devalue them, though. They're no, delicious. No, no. They're no, delicious. Like it is worth it. So good. Yeah. I love them. I bet you they were a lot... Less expensive, even or cheaper, even. That place has been there since I was a kid. I would imagine oh, they were cheaper. They, I would imagine yeah, before cheaper, then. Yeah, but they haven't raised their prices substantially. Yeah, very impressive. Mm. So, well, enjoy your donuts, mm -hmm. and the coffee is fantastic. Thank you for sharing your birthday present. I am. This yeah, felt like coffee birthday. that was mm -hmm. worthy of being shared. So I have a question for you because this episode we're talking about interreligious dialogue. 
Mm-hmm. And we have as our guests, uh, they call themselves the three amigos. This is, uh, the sounds inter- like the beginning to all amigos? bad jokes. Oh, sorry. Interfaith amigos. No, yeah, the three, three amigos, amigos are different. That's like my little buttercup. Anyway, um, <laughs> they don't sing that. So uh, these are the I interfaith amigos. And there is a Christian minister. Yes. And mm-hmm. like writer, theologian. And a rabbi. I was going to say a Jewish rabbi, but I think that's... Implied? And an imam. Mm-hmm. And they have done talks, you know, around the world and written books and such. And they do interfaith dialogue things. And they're fascinating. And it was mm-hmm. great to speak with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they started, I think, after 9-11. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. As I recall it, the, they were formed as a response from 9-11, okay. wanting to have, you know, good, healthy conversation. I believe in the Seattle area is where yeah. they originated. And mm-hmm. I believe that that Reverend Don... Um, has moved, but they've stayed in touch. Yeah, I think because you said that they've had weekly calls. Yeah, for, for all twenty years. years. And they have um, the imam has a like an interfaith congregation mm-hmm. in Seattle, really, really, really interesting. which so we need to go visit. Person. I think so. Even as I say that, as a you know recovering <laughs> evangelical, whatever you want to say, uh, pastor, even um, recovering pastor, even as it, there's an interfaith congregation, mm-hmm. that's uh, not possible. As I say that. There's those little voices or the presence that's that if you said that in a church as a minister or something and spoke about that positively, you might get a negative reception. What for each of you growing up in your Christian formation, uh, the context of the churches you were in, which were quite different for each of you. They really were. Yeah. Um, yeah. What what would people have thought leaders were about interfaith as a positive thing? Uh, Amanda, you go first. <laughs> And in many ways, it just wasn't. Like, it wasn't that there was a lot of negative, mm-hmm. but it just simply didn't exist. Um, I can remember a couple of times hearing things like, even Catholics aren't Christian. Like, if we're, we want to <laughs> go super even weird, that's not even interfaith, <laughs> no, no, no. I know. But almost like a we're not even sure if silence all Christians are around okay. the idea of anything outside of the Christian faith. Judaism, mm-hmm. uh, Islam, Islam, anything, um, Hindu. So anything. even interdenominational. Yeah, I remember one time in the church I was in, I was a youth pastor at the time, but this guy, he was like a local community faith leader, and they, he was running some thing, I don't even know what it was. But he was invited to the church to like promo this. You know how they do like those those promos, like this this ministry we should all know about. Mm. And he started it by saying that it, he was this thing, and he was involved in a friend of his um, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and he's Anglican, but don't worry. He's also yeah. Christian. Yeah. He said to this group of, plum- and he wasn't joking. No, nope. Isn't that crazy? He thought, I need to say that this Anglican friend of mine also happens to be Christian. There yeah. was, it was just this kind of unspoken implied, those people, those other people mm-hmm. are wrong. So we're saying this across denominations. So across Faith. It was certainly across other faiths, though. The only there's only one true God, and we know who it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I'm trying to recall anything super specific growing up. Um, I know, like in elementary school, which I, I was at a, a Christian school, I remember going um, to to some different faith, um, like buildings, you congregations. Mean denominations no no no. i remember we we went we went to um a sikh temple i mean we were in surrey was there's several um i remember going to a synagogue 
I don't recall if we actually went to a mosque. But I remember, like, we, we went and we learned, and it was, like... We well, that's interesting. So it was nice that's that... That's surprising to me. Yes. Um, and and I remember, like, there wasn't, like, any sort of, like, castigation while we were there. Like, they, they were super kind to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but in my own experience, like, in my in my church community, Amanda, I think you, I think you hit it that there was always this like us and them was mm-hmm. very much but i don't remember people saying like you know muslims are them and jews are them there was no naming but they didn't it. need to i remember mm-hmm. wondering whether catholics were christians wondering yeah. whether people i can remember of there's different certain prayers that include things that'll say like the holy catholic church mm-hmm. and remember being well it's a creed right yeah, yeah. and they're like Which what does, doesn't, doesn't mean, mean that doesn't mean the catholic church. it certainly no. doesn't yeah. but the, it also wasn't explained and yeah. so, so for assume that, someone like young people, in their faith yeah. or like a kid or whatever like yeah. not understanding it means the worldwide church the church around the world i didn't understand yeah. that um yeah so i'm not it wasn't sure taught. that, yeah. that well, a lot was discouraged no spe- like explicitly discouraged but there was within my church context there was certainly that i recall not encouragement to really cross even denominational boundaries but, let alone no. faith boundaries there was it was very much celebrated if in my r- recollection i mean i don't i don't I don't honestly I don't recall doing this myself ever, but it was very much celebrated if like that Muslim person became a Christian. Oh yes. yes. So in other in, in in that kind of thinking, the relationship between the evangelical church and other faiths was they should become Christian. Yeah, and I don't know if it's it's our Canadian context as well, where it wasn't um it's a little more intensely pluralist. S- spoken like those other people are bad or there, there certainly wasn't any of that. And I think um, in other places, certainly that yeah, probably has that. happened. Like right. And, and we're also Islam talking about like right. my growing up experiences pre nine 11, right. The world yeah. looked different after nine 11 and the way people approached other faiths, especially Islam. Um, and I, and sometimes I think our, you know, our Vancouver Canadian context, we, we I don't are know that that's nationally applicable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Things like the 30-hour famine, things like certain youth events, the implication was go find those friends who don't know Jesus or the ones who have the wrong faith and try to bring them over. That's a very interesting point because I think that's a major uh, point of tension and and kind of transition or whatever you want to say for people who've come out of the evangelical church or because it's not as if many of those people are entirely, they don't entirely reject the idea of conversion even or coming to faith or what, but there's a lot of discomfort over those kinds of memories. Like, so was I supposed to help my not my Muslim friends become not Muslim? Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, as a, as a minister, I always used to think, and I would say this sometimes to people that if you put that thing in reverse, if it was a bu- if it was like our kids mm-hmm. going to the mosque for their skateboarding thing on a Friday night, which is all like you know to some degree bait and switch. Let's try to get the kids here with programs so that they can become. I mean, that's kind of a cynical view of it, but that's at least some some yeah. truth to mm-hmm. that. So, would Christians be okay with that happening the other way? No, no, it's not at least. And again, experience. it didn't need to be said, though it didn't need to be spoken, but we knew. 
accepted. Yeah. And I think what well, it wasn't welcome. I yeah. mean, I think one of the things as as I've tried to like think through my own personal sort of faith journey and trying to understand why I believed what I believed, like how I came to those conclusions. I think one of the unfortunate things that we have inherited in the wake of Calvinism, like I, I hear there are good things about Calvin. Um, <laughs> the word you've heard the it's been said. <laughs> I've heard it's been said. I mean, I, I do think he's a brilliant thinker. I, I don't have to like everything that he did, but I think one of the, the things that we have inherited from Calvinism is the belief that if you do not believe properly, mm-hmm. that it is an actual like issue of salvation. And so what I've experienced in evangelicalism, and I would imagine it's in other places as well. well Presbyterians love Calvin. Yeah, they do. Um, I don't know if they hold on to the tendent as much that there wasn't an understanding of faith that like, this is how I see God. This is how it makes sense to me. This is what I believe. There's various ways that you could approach this though. There was always, this is there the is way. A, there is a proper way. This is the way. Mm-hmm. Well, and certainly those without... <laughs> Without those, shout out to Gavin, yeah. Amanda's partner. <laughs> those outside of uh, Christian faith would then not be. But it was even within Christian faith. In other words, there was, you could there have was a specific particular way. Certainly to within Christian faith, but you also have this kind of sense. Even people thinking of themselves as kind of being benevolent or kind to other faiths would be like, well, I mean, they're misguided, but they're but they're really nice people. It's a little condescending. Know, that it's a little. And now I think, Just and I think bit. for those the kinds of people who listen to the content that we put out. Uh, this is this is a, an important point of tension, I think, yeah. that we could, I hope, help with. The idea that that other person, because at its base, and I think obviously most evangelical Christians even don't really believe this, because if they really believed it, they wouldn't, you know, ever relax. If, they, if, if you think as an evangelical Christian or as a Christian that anybody who doesn't believe what you do is like damned forever for mm-hmm. all eternity then you have to try to convert yeah. everybody of Well, that's things, a terrifying right? thought. That it but is. The, good the, friend down the road is going to burn in hell. Yeah, yeah but I think the Condemned. more hopeful way of understanding, and I mm-hmm. would say also more biblical and whatever, is that um, for my uh, Muslim friends, right, that I have a deep appreci- appreciation for their faith. I don't mm-hmm. say our faiths are the same. I don't think that's respectful either. We believe yeah. differently. Yeah, but it's distinction without saying that there's a superiority that right. I carry. Or that and wrong. for me, growing in my Christian faith does not mean trying no. to have to make them believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Believe. Well, and we I think need that to move past that kind of idea. Well, part of what I think, whether for whether it was intentional or not, for Calvin, like the, the inheritance that, that the evangelical tradition and Presbyterians particularly would have from Calvin is, I don't know how you can have interfaith conversation when that's your starting place. You can't. Because mm-hmm. the other person is a threat. It's if... They are either going to there's somebody derail to be defeated you. or converted. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and and so it, it's one of those things that I know that I had to personally let go of of that needing to have all the right answers or or think I did because I probably didn't anyway. Um, but being okay with the ambiguity and being okay with if somebody understands faith differently than I do, that's not a threat to my faith anymore it would have been when I was growing up that was certainly what was professed like unity meant uniformity yeah in my mm. in my you know faith community and I mean that's not the way the bible actually talks about unity 
when you look at even Paul, which bit of a divisive character there, but he talks about the church functioning as a body and that there are different parts and people do different things and you don't want a body full of eyes. That'd be terrible and horrifying. Strange looking. I'm just now visualizing that <laughs> and that's... Yeah, but when you when you talk about the body, I mean, we all heard that growing up so much. With yeah, that's just it. And it was all, when the body functions really well, we'll be doing this conversion mission yeah which is not it's a different which is not what paul says i know but it's funny even (laughs) as you're saying that that, i'm like well of course we all heard you know the story about the body but we just understood it differently Mm -hmm. (laughs) hands and feet differently that's been such a a blessing for me and our friends like david go and others who Mm -hmm. has such a you know obviously vital christian faith but um such integral and such beautiful spiritual relationships outside across the and a reverence for other faiths yeah that you see a beauty uh, in the faith of the other person yeah it's not your faith it's not what you believe mm-hmm. it's not like it's not you you wouldn't want to say it's christian faith it's something different than that but also so that it helps you to see your own faith better to understand to grow but also allows you to be present with the other person they're not a mission mm-hmm. now yeah. <laughs> they're not i mean how many times did we see that that high school is a mission field oh. which was celebrated as like a good thing to say and it's like mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, if we approach people that way as people to be one to our side, um, a lot or is lost. Fixed. Yeah. Or fixed. Yeah. Or fixed. Not even just brought over. But so these things, you could see why, though, the people who were like interfaith dialogue is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that was their objective, oh, this I totally would be understand. dangerous. Yes. To well, say, there, there's no way to view it as anything other than threat. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you said, my, my Muslim friend, I'm so grateful. They have an Islamic faith. That's their faith. It helps me to see things so much differently than the character that's presented on TV or whatever, or the yeah. mm-hmm. you know the violent kind of character that is given. Um, and and I and I'm so grateful that they're Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To say that in some of these contexts, people people have associated maybe some of the people listening that that means you have a weaker Christian faith. I've obviously in many come to see that's not the case at all. It's no. actually a weaker faith to not allow these kinds of differences. And, and so, what a freeing thing to think that way. Yeah, and when we so this conversation we have with the interfaith amigos, there's such I mean these are really intelligent people. They know oh, what they're yeah. talking. Oh yeah. But I think also what you'll pick up as you listen is the beauty. The beauty in dialogue across these lines that these well, divisions don't have to be detrimental to faith no. and, and what's they're not idealistic like like um that's not the correct word no but like, they didn't have like rose colored glasses no on. like they talked about the difficulties that they've experienced mm-hmm. the points where they've had tension and i mean um i listened to a presentation that they did at a conference that i was at last month and um i believe it was imam jamal, jamal said that he's like you have to get to hard issues like yeah, across you, the line. You yeah. have to. Because if, if you get you, to where you disagree. Because if you never get to those hard issues, then it never actually translates into a real relationship. And you're still gonna leave with these preconceptions of, you know, the Muslim is a terrorist and you know the the Christian is arrogant or is violent or like because you <laughs> you have to get to those points of tension. Although he was very, very clear that there are preceding steps before you get there. Like there needs to be a relationship and trust and faith in each other and love for each other before you can 
enter into those deep conversations. Yeah. So I, it's just a, such I'm a really beautiful way that, of that, talking about it. And I'm grateful that there's movement on this in a lot mm-hmm. of parts of the Christian church, including some of those evangelical churches. They, yeah. They're not many of them holding to those rigid lines anymore. Well, I think people want, I think people want to, to be able to see the beauty in other traditions and other cultures and other things. And I think but there been are told people. It's not okay. Yeah. yeah. And so I feel like <laughs> let's give them permission. Like it is okay. Yeah. Enjoy the beauty. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't try to hide. Don't feel like, Oh, I shouldn't be thinking that that's a really amazing way to think of the divine. Like yeah. I remember like when you hear about, the ways that different faith traditions, or when I heard about the ways that different faith traditions understood certain concepts of, you know, the divine or the relationship between humanity and creator and those sorts of things, there was almost this guilt when I saw that it was beautiful because I was like, but it's wrong. You're being deceived. Mm. Yeah. And, and I'm like, no, you don't, you don't have it's to the think devil that. At work. You can, you can be just completely in awe of what? the beauty of other religious traditions. And one of the interesting things and kind of sad in a way is that when you speak with people like, like these three trying to promote and demonstrate interfaith dialogue, I remember hearing this from David Goa about um, himself, his own faith tradition, and then his friend Imam al-Sharqawi yeah. um, speaking about, and then you'll hear it from, I think, these three, that within each of our own traditions that's where the resistance comes from for the most part mm-hmm. it comes from within our own religious community where it's not only christian churches but in yep. some of these other communities there's such a suspicion of mm-hmm. the other that's well, what they're trying to address and say i think the thing that struck me was their compassion mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. they were intensely compassionate to each other um and to those around them yeah you could pick up the gratitude yeah you? Mm-hmm. very much so and I think part of that is based on, I know at least for Imam Jamal and Reverend Don, like they've, they've had 20 years of friendship. Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Laura, who we... She's new. She's, she's newer, newer edition, to their group. Newer yeah. to their group. Um, I don't know how much she, she had interaction with them before. Um, but I mean, I think that there, there's groundwork that has to happen before you can kind of get to that compassion. And... So, I mean, there's part where I feel like an encouragement to people who, who feel like maybe they're going to do this poorly. You probably are, like, initially. Like, there, there's a learning phase. Yeah, like, you can't just enter into I, something and be like, I'm going to do this well, and we're going to be awesome at this. And I think like, that's it's, true it's if you're trying to promote interreligious dialogue, because that's, that's an objective that has mm-hmm. a depth to it. I think one of the things that's interesting, though, is that just in our day-to-day, like, humanity, interacting yeah. with people... I think most of us are more naturally drawn to just want to be present with and when for it's not the other, even if they don't believe mm-hmm. what we believe. The suspicion is picked up from what we've been taught. So it's almost like we're, we're drawn to another person, just relationship to friendship, whatever. And it's like, oh, is this dangerous, right? And so I'm so grateful that this is happening. I know mm-hmm. people will enjoy mm-hmm. this conversation. Uh, Please look do. up Interfaith Amigos. Yep. Um, not the three amigos. No, mm-hmm. not the three I amigos. mean, you could if you want, but that's a different thing. Yeah. Very different and, uh, <laughs> and they're just fascinating to listen to. So yes. thanks so both mm-hmm. of you very much. Enjoy. enjoy the donuts. We'll enjoy our coffee and donuts. <laughs> Well, I'm very pleased to be joined today for our episode of Rector's Cupboard by a group called the Interfaith Amigos. They used to be Imam Jamal Rahman, Reverend Don McKenzie, and Rabbi Ted Falcon. But Rabbi Ted recently retired, 
And so uh, Rabbi Laura Duhan Kaplan has joined in his place. Um, she was interested in the work of the Interfaith Amigos, and now she's among them, working with them. So Imam Jamal and Reverend Mackenzie and Rabbi Laura. Uh, well, first, the with Rabbi Ted, those three taught together since 2001, led workshops in the United States and in Israel-Palestine, and Jamal's personal experience as a Muslim after 9-11 moved him to share more of the substance of Islam. Ted stepped more visibly into the larger community, teaching how a healing spirituality emerges within Judaism, and Don concluded his position as minister of university congregational to devote more time to focusing on ways that a true spirituality supports us in bringing healing to our world. Together, they explore an inclusive spirituality to promote healing that expresses as concrete environmental, social, and political action. They bring a message of deep hope and profound possibilities for healing on both a personal level and a planetary level. Their work comprises a dialogue of mind, heart, hands, and encourages greater understanding, compassion, and social action in the world. I want to introduce a little bit, give a little bit of bio of each of the three before um, we begin uh, speaking to one another. Reverend Donald McKenzie, minister of the United Church of Christ, is a graduate of Malcal- oh, how do I say this? I'm sorry. McAllister. McAllister College in Prince and, and of Princeton Theological Seminary and New York University. He taught at Princeton and was a minister at Nassau Presbyterian Church, Church of Christ at Dartmouth College, and University Congregational Church in Seattle. Since 2001, he's been part of the Interfaith Amigos, and he's co-authored with them three books. He's also an accomplished country musician. Imam Jamal Rahman is a popular speaker on Islam, Sufi spirituality, and interfaith relations. Along with the other interfaith amigos, he's been featured in the New York Times, CBS News, BBC, NPR programs, and other places. He's co-founder and Muslim Sufi, Sufi minister at an interfaith community sanctuary, adjunct faculty at Seattle University, former co-host of Interfaith Talk Radio, and he travels nationally and internationally presenting at retreats and workshops, also co-author of those books. He's also the author of books on Sufi spirituality, most recently, Sacred Laughter of the Sufis. Rabbi Laura Duhan Kaplan is Director of Interreligious Studies, Professor of Jewish Studies at the Vancouver School of Theology, Rabbi Emerita of Or Shalom Synagogue, and she's won many awards for her teaching of religion and philosophy, including the Carnegie Foundation's prestigious U.S. Professor of the Year. She's the author of Mouth of the Donkey, Reimagining Biblical Animals, and Shekinah, Bring Me Home, Kabbalah, and Omer in Real Life. She's also collaboratively authored four books on interfaith topics, including Friendship, Reconciliation, Othering, and Hope. And I know from speaking with Rabbi Laura that she's delighted to be part of this Interfaith Amigos group. So that's it for the bio, so welcome to the three of you. How are you today? Great, thank you. Good, I'm really, really grateful for you uh, joining this conversation, and it's a privilege for me to be able to be part of it. Such a hopeful and necessary and, and healing thing at this time in our world and at this time in each of our faiths. Um, so I thought I'd start by simply asking for a little bit of background on each of you. I don't know who wants to go first. There was some discussion about that before we started recording. Um, so tell us, um, you know, a little bit about your background and how you, how you came to be part of Interfaith Amigos. Laura. 
Rabbi Laura. Well, I guess I. There you go. I guess I will go first. Okay. It's Rabbi Laura here. Religiously and spiritually, I was raised in an intensive, immersive upbringing that we might call, in Jewish circles, conservadox. So somewhere between a conservative, very observant upbringing and a liberal, free-thinking upbringing. So I was raised to think very expansively about religion, though I was also held very closely in a small community of one particular religious tradition and a religious minority at that. But I grew up, moved into many different circles, and the way I got into interfaith work, specifically, was after I was an ordained rabbi, I was seeking some help with pastoral care. I felt I was not fully spiritually present, even though I had done all of the training Mm. that was required in my movement for my ordination. So my spiritual director suggested that I study spiritual direction. And I knew that my movement had a program in spiritual direction, but I did not want to go to classes with the same people I went to seminary with and the same professors I had already been studying with for five years. And as I was living in Vancouver at the time, I found out that the Progressive Christian Vancouver School of Theology had a program in spiritual direction, and I attended the program, had a magnificent experience as I learned about the history of Christian spirituality, translated everything I learned internally into Jewish spiritual language, and then translated back into Christian language so that I could communicate effectively with my classmates. And I learned so much about both traditions by having to do that internal process that I became hooked. And when someone from VST called and said, we might have a position opening in interreligious studies, I said, sign me up. That's so good. So wonderful. Thank you so much. Who's the next one to go? That's going to be logical. In order of um, traditions, I guess. Um, (laughs) With a name like Mackenzie, you can imagine I was born a Presbyterian. My great-grandfather was a pastor in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland My goodness. and formed the Harris Tweed industry with the Countess of Dunmore as an outreach project of his church. And so I was raised as a Presbyterian. My parents uh, were very open to the new, um, very concerned about both spirituality and social activism. My father was a conscientious objector during World War II and had hoped to drive an ambulance. Um, and so, but the other thing I would say that helped to shape my uh, sensibilities were two things. One, living in the Middle East twice, once in Cairo and once in uh, Lebanon. And then um, the the conviction from a very early age that it couldn't possibly be true that Christianity was supposed to be superior to others. I just didn't believe that even though I finally went to seminary and agreed to certain aspects of defending the faith and so forth in my ordination that I would say now I would uh, quarrel with. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so uh, when um, Jamal and Ted asked me to be a part of a 
an event on the first anniversary of 9-11, I agreed. And afterward, we, the three of us, realized quickly, I think, that we each had an intuition that if we could penetrate the barriers that have separated our traditions, we might find ways to cooperate in addressing the moral issues that are before us. And uh, we've that's what we've been doing. And it's been a great blessing to me. Uh, Jamal is a dear friend, Ted, and now Laura. We're so happy to have her. Um, so that's yes. my story. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Imam Jamal. Yes, uh, thank you. So uh, this is um, Imam Jamal. I'm a Muslim. And I come from a lineage of Islamic spiritual teachers, and some of them are called Sufis. Uh, they focus very much on what we would like to call the, the essence rather than the form. But you know, my, my father, he broke ranks. He opted to become a diplomat. And so as a result, I, along with my parents and my siblings, we have traveled to many parts of the world and my parents being very liberal-minded, like, like Brother Don, you were saying your parents were. I have uh, attended many, many church services, been to temples, uh, houses of worship, uh, Jewish services in different countries. That really gave me a, a wonderful connection with the beauty of uh, diversity mm. and the joy and the celebration of diversity. And really thanks to my parents, they encouraged us. So deep inside, I always wanted to do something which involved the work of personal development because I knew that this was the key, doing the inner inconvenient work, becoming more Christ-like, Buddha-like, Allah-like, Elohim-like, without which it is not possible to celebrate diversity. So I, I always wanted to do something where uh, there was some teaching of different traditions, but particularly creating interfaith community mm. to foster a living, breathing interfaith community. And I always wondered, you know, how would that happen? So anyhow, I took the plunge. I left all the other work I was doing and started teaching classes in my home. And from that, a community developed. In those days, there was no internet. This is the uh, early 90, 1991 but there was no internet, but you know, people had different people had homes of different sizes. So we would do worship services in different people's homes, wow. teach classes. And then, you know, it was really fulfilling my <laughs> deepest aspiration. So I said to everybody, you know, how can I help you, help you? Some people said, you know, I also want to teach a class, but I can't do marketing. So we said, no, you just focus on that. We'll bring the people. Some others said, you know, I'm in need of a little bit more money. They were very sincere. No problem. We'll help you with that. Yeah. So community grew. For seven years, we used to meet in different people's homes, worship services, classes. Some people had small homes, medium homes. Some had large homes. So on paper, at one point, we were a few hundred people. Oh, wow. We realized we were called the circle of love in Seattle. And then we realized, you know, we did, it, would be, it would be very useful, beneficial if we had a central place, one place we could all gather rather than different people's homes. None of us had the expertise or the financial resources, but, you know, we prayed. And we had good insurance. By that, by that I mean prayers from different traditions. 
So we prayed and prayed, and 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 That's believe fantastic. me, Todd, I really believe in miracles. This place I'm sitting in right now, uh, this is the oldest uh, wooden frame church building in Seattle. It's small. This was given to us for free. It was just handed over to us. That's a long story, but just know that our knees are scraped yeah. in gratitude. <laughs> so here we have this. We suddenly came into possession of this beautiful building, a historic building. 18, I know, by many standards, not very old, but by standards yeah. of Seattle, 1890, older than I am. So that's old, but you know, by now. And we, we foster a living, breathing, interfaith community. We ask ourselves almost every day, what does it mean to foster a living, breathing, interfaith community? Anyhow, I'll just move on to say a few more things very quickly. So I am the co-founder and Muslim Sufi minister, imam at this interfaith community sanctuary. But I'm also one third, as you mentioned, of the interfaith amigos, which happened after or just during uh, 9-11. So after, after the events of 9-11, kind of in response to that? In, in response yeah, okay. to that, yes. Then the interfaith amigos came together. And so now I, I have several hats I wear, uh, imam at this sanctuary, one third of the interfaith amigos, and it's been a joyous ride since. We had a great time, you know, both being in this place in Seattle and traveling all over the country and sometimes overseas with the interfaith amigos, sharing a message of inclusivity. Mm. And I must just end by saying I'm so delighted that with Rabbi Ted's blessing, we have now a rock star, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, <laughs> Rabbi Johan Kaplan, yes, with yeah. us. <laughs> the just hearing the, the three of you say this and the joy with which you speak and the it, it would seem to me the obvious enlivening of your own faith from this project that's evident in how you speak a couple things come up I, i'd like to talk about in a few minutes the steps to interfaith dialogue that you outline but before that i thought i'd ask because a lot of people would have these questions right and I, i'm thinking of that joy that i just mentioned um, what it is, so I'll play the question kind of on both sides, what it is that you find most hopeful, beautiful, rewarding, whatever, about interfaith dialogue. And then the other side of that is, what, it, what is it that you see that people are afraid of in terms of interfaith dialogue because there's so much fear around it? Very quickly, I can tell you, the joy of interfaith dialogue is that we encounter the other going beyond our tribal affiliations as human beings. And there's great joy in connecting with the other as a human being on a personal heart-to-heart -heart level. Because once we do that, no matter what our differences are, whether it's religious, political, uh, racial, cultural, whatever it is, we can no longer demonize the other. And then it somehow, if you have a personal relationship, it seems to create the spaciousness mm. to get together and do some social projects of social justice, of earth care. So I would say there is great joy in simply connecting uh, on a human level. That's wonderful. I would just add to what Jamal said. Um, I think in some ways, I think of it more as interfaith understanding. <laughs> Dialogue is very important, but we're not just talking. <sighs> we're really we're really getting to know the other, and this this will be part of the conversation. Uh, for the for the purpose of actually doing things that create uh, the kind of 
um, communities that uh, Jamal has talked about so beautifully and Laura has too. Um, we have been in our tribal silos yes. for thousands of years. And it's time to see that, see that big picture. It's a complicated one, but to see the big picture and to try to penetrate the barriers yeah. and, and get together. Well said. Then in that case, I will address the fear part of your question, Todd. Some of what people are afraid of is a very understandable and legitimate concern that parents might have for being protective of their children. Mm. For example, as someone raised in a religious minority in a vulnerable time in history, I completely understand that my parents and their peers wanted to keep us sheltered within a community of people who they knew personally or who were trusted by people they knew personally because they had plenty of reason to be afraid of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and its effects. And they genuinely feared for us at times when we stepped outside of that circle because they didn't know if it would go well for us. Yeah. There are also levels of fear that come out of ignorance and come out of people getting their information from media and sources that are politically biased, yeah. but don't present themselves as politically biased. And so we learn some of the worst stereotypes about people who are different. And we are, we become then, I wanted to say we are legitimately afraid, but I've already used the word legitimately to talk about something else. But yeah. we understandably, again, become afraid that we are meeting people with criminal values um, who actively wish to harm us. And interestingly, the most, the strongest fears are among people who have learned the least about their own tradition yeah. and other traditions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. You it's, know, Todd, if I may just add one more point yeah, here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, a very also, uh, in addition to what Rabbi Laura said, a basic fear is that even if I don't meet a person of another tradition, but I study their traditions, yeah, if I explore their traditions, the fear is this will dilute my connection with my own yes. religion. You see, yeah, there's a big fear there. So I always tell people, okay, that's fine, go with that fear, but you know, be scientific, do some critical thinking. Uh, Open yourself up to studying the beauty and the practices of other traditions. See what it does to you. So I always tell them, this has been my experience, and it's a universal experience. I'm a Muslim. I'm rooted in Islam. But I have found by experimenting, because of my background, my parents, when I'm open to the beauty and wisdom of other traditions, this waters yes. my Islamic roots, makes me a better Muslim, a more deeply rooted Muslim, and a more developed human being. So I say, experiment, you know, uh, have that fear, but be a scientist. That's really well said. And I love the metaphor too. It's um, the, the six um, steps to interfaith understanding, uh, dialogue and understanding. 
um, just to briefly, I'll, I'll just kind of briefly list them as I have them. I've kind of sketched out the notes. Um, and then for each of you to comment on one or two of them or however you want to talk about them. But one you've mentioned already, uh, Reverend Don, you mentioned the importance of knowing the other. Um, that this this actual kind of engagement rather than assumption. And uh, secondly, uh, connecting to core traditions, a sense of... Um, uh, and, and the third one as well, uh, which is about understanding ourselves, becoming aware of our own sacred texts um, and the blind spots within either interpretation or understanding. Um, and then a willingness to address more difficult issues. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in your work, I've seen it in a number of places, is that one of the blocks to interfaith understanding is an unwillingness to upset the other, which isn't necessarily a mark of um, friendship or company. It's a mark of keeping distance. Um, but And then fifth, uh, I, I really like this one. If, if the work is about completion, not conversion, and this is, I think, uh, Imam Jamal, what you were just mentioning, if we can understand the work being about completion, not conversion, then other religions can water my tradition, my faith. Uh, and then finally, if we are interested in structural change, actual meaningful change, we must be willing to do difficult internal work, self-reflection. Uh, these are wonderful places to start. And so I don't know if each of you has a favorite or if somebody wants to start with number one, but tell me and the listeners about these steps, about you know which one really resonates with you or how you got to these or go ahead and start kind of opening up our conversation there. Well, I might, uh, Todd, I might just begin with a brief statement about how we came by these mm -hmm. things, which wasn't as if we set out to find them. Um, we set out to get to know each other and really had no idea that it would lead to anything other than friendship and the possibility that our three communities in Seattle might actually cooperate uh, in various things, including worship and, and uh, service projects and so forth. But as time went by and as we met weekly, and we did meet weekly for over 20 years. Wow. Um, after I moved to uh, Minnesota, we met on Zoom. Um, Ted had been living on Whidbey too. So we had been meeting on Zoom ah. for quite a while now. And, but we, you know, after, after 20 years of weekly meetings, we got to know each other <laughs> and we discovered I mean, we bumped into these things and realized that they were sequential. Hmm. Um, and they had and our first book, we had them as a piece of the first book. And the editor realized that was the shape of the whole book. And that was a I mean, she was terrific. And that was a real revelation to us that, you know, the level of importance she was ascribing to these things. So that said, that's so good. To hear. I would just say the first first step is getting to know the other, and we're not talking about getting to know the other's religion, right? Which is important at some point. We're talking about getting to know the other as a human being, being what Brian Stevenson calls being proximate. I love that word because it's so pointed. Being near someone who's different, and being able to listen, which I think, as I. I think for a white Christian like me is the key. Everybody knows what's what it's like to be a white Christian. That's what the culture uh, uh, provides. But I need to listen to hear what it's like to be, you know, people of other traditions, other ethnicities, and, and so forth. And um, I think we felt that that's what we were doing. Uh, not we didn't set out to do it necessarily, but we didn't. 
we did talk about some uh, theological or spiritual things at the beginning, but more of it was really uh, getting to know each other as human beings. And you know, you know but Don, I would say uh, when we became friends, which you, which we was emphasizing is the key, and that requires a lot of work, by the way, humility, sincerity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I wanted to say when we became had some friendship, then we were able to truly listen mm, without. Right formulating our defensive answer as the other person is speaking. Right. Uh, you know, when I got to know uh, Pastor Don and Rabbi Ted, and I meant it, I, I thought to myself, I told them, I said it publicly, hey, these are two of the best Muslims I know. <laughs> I think it first of all scared them a little bit, then I explained what that means. <laughs> Muslim just means somebody who's really surrendered to God. So that friendship part and the listening part uh, authentic listening is very critical to create that connection. Well, we're on the first one of of knowing the other, and I'm I'm really interested in this, um, the foundation of friendship. Uh, I think talking to any of my friends who engage in interfaith work, dialogue, understanding, they all say what you've just said, that there is a friendship element to this that is. Uh, I don't know, essential or not, but they certainly speak of it as gift. Uh, to, to really be able to make a genuine human connection, I have to do the inner inconvenient work of overcoming my biases, my prejudices, my stereotyping of the other. I have to step outside the envelope, as it were. It requires, you know, courage. It requires, uh, you know, a commitment. It requires persistence. So without me doing the inner work, or becoming more Christ-like, you might say, if you're a Christian, mm. it'll be difficult for me to connect because I'll always have those conditioned biases within me. Yeah, that's so well put. That I mean, that gets to the sixth point, I think, right? The willingness right. to make that change, to right. do the internal work. And I, you know, not to be a downer on it, but I think a lot of people listening would be like, would assume that that most people aren't willing to do that in terms of interfaith stuff. That that's that's a high bar. Have you seen that, that? That is essential to do, not just for interfaith. To yeah, that's true. A, a, a true Christian, an authentic Christian, or authentic Muslim. Yeah, well said. Well said. And sometimes in this work, we have to realize that becoming friends doesn't always feel good every single step mm. of the way. So situations where we are in physical danger, I think we should avoid those when we're seeking a positive interfaith experience, generally speaking. But if we are genuinely trying to connect interreligiously and we hear about some negative stereotypes of ourselves, that may feel quite terrible. Mm. And Lord knows it happens to me mm. several times a week being a Jew in an environment filled with well-meaning Christians who are just beginning their mm. education and interfaith journey. So I'm used to it, but the first few times wow. it happens, you do often feel like you want to back away and run out of the room. And simply staying in the room to allow yourself to begin that inner process of yeah. learning how to deal with those feelings. That's an important step. 
Yeah, I think friendship is key for a number of reasons. First, if I'm friends with someone and I'm committed to being part of their lives and letting them be part of my life, and they say something that is hurtful to me, I will make a decision whether I'm just going to let it go and deal with my own feelings or whether I'm going to say something to them. And if we have a genuine friendship, even if I say it wrong, we're committed to talking it through. And that's a posture that uh, takes some active commitment to bring into interfaith work. However, if we live, for example, in any kind of a large city, then we likely have daily contact with people from different cultures and different faith traditions. And we don't think anything about it. We might talk to the people who work in the grocery store, chit-chat with them after years of going there. And maybe we have never talked about religion, but it's the most natural thing in the world. And then yet somehow when people from my synagogue are going to meet with people from that mosque, it's suddenly fraught because suddenly what we have learned about how to be members of an exclusive religious community kicks in. So one of the challenges is to bring those two mindsets together. That's really well stated. Yeah. Um, And and Rabbi Laura and Imam Jamal speak with an authority concerning uh, the treatment uh, that uh, Jews and and Muslims have, Mm. have received at the hands of Christian people. I think one thing that I think I learned both in terms of interfaith and um, in terms of racial justice here in Minnesota is that we can't just say, well, let's be friends now. I think for Christian people, we have to say Christians have repudiated both Judaism and Islam. I don't mean they've been, I don't mean Christians have said it's less than Christianity, it's nothing. And that must be said before we can say, okay, let's move from there. Let's listen to what Laura has just said or what Jamal has just said. And then we can start building something new that draws on the the authority of Judaism, on Islam, and Christianity. But But unless we say, unless we name the truth about where the suffering has happened, it's not going to really happen. I think that's true of racism. Um, my church here in Minneapolis, the church where I'm a member, is on the western edge of the largest urban uh, indigenous population in the country. And so we can't, you know, we can't go to people in that community and say, well, let, what can we do? We have to say, first of all, we have to say we understand the damage. We, we are trying Thank to understand the damage and suffering that has happened at the hands of Europeans. And we're trying to know as much about that as possible as we try to get to know you, which in my case is listening again, and then finding ways to collaborate on working ways to change and and, and to develop a new culture. But the Todd, uh, along, those, along those same lines, uh, we go, go on to number three now. Uh, it is critical and this is the beauty of, I think, the work that we have been doing, Interfaith Amigos, for which we've got so many invitations all over the country. We are talking about the areas where 
religion goes astray, not in your religion, in my religion. Yes, I love that that's you guys where, say that. That's where the conversation starts. Uh, when we get to religion, you see, if I talk about where have I, ha, ha, the institution of Islam, for, for a variety of reasons, gone astray in the areas we know, exclusivity, violence in the scriptures, unequal status of women, homophobia, not in your religion. In our, Let me talk about that in my religion. And that really allows us to be vulnerable, transparent, and opens possibilities for finding creative, joyous solutions. Yeah. It, it's also such a potential bridge for these relationships. Like Rabbi Lawyer, you mentioned, I love that. Uh, picture you give of it's it's fine in the grocery store but when it's in the context of the actual you know then there's these kind of things well up again when you talk about um let's talk about some of the difficulties pains challenges untruths whatever from our own uh, tradition i would imagine some of those meetings with i'm picturing a group of people or something would have people saying oh you have that too <laughs> you know like um oh we we have those same struggles right that this is and it becomes again something that speaks of uh, the human experience and the human condition rather than simply my uh, faith understanding of that, right? Something that brings together. Um, beautifully put. Uh, Rabbi Laura. I would like to tell a little story about that. And in a sense, maybe it upsets the linearity of the six steps. That's okay. We're, we're, we're willing to do that. <laughs> Great. A number of years ago, our synagogue in Vancouver, or rather the women in our synagogue in Vancouver, reached out to the women in a local mosque, and we proposed meeting with them for a book group. And the first book that we chose, I was not on the book choosing committee, but I think they made a fantastic choice. The first book that they chose was a book that we're very lucky to have, short essays by Jewish, Christian, and Muslim women reflecting on their lives in their faith tradition. And many of the essays in that book were about their challenges in finding their ways as women in communities that were less than gender egalitarian. Mm. And so discussing that book, even at our first meeting, we came together already having a similar critique of our institutions to share. Do you remember the name of the book or I, no? No. Okay. I can we'll, look it okay, up. Okay, look it up. We can put, we can can put, put it, it in, in the, the notes. episode notes. Yeah, great. Thanks. Because that sounds fantastic. Yeah. And, and we had the added ease that the issues were set out for us in the book and we were responding to them so that none of us had to go first to say this is what's wrong, but all of us could recognize ourselves in the book. And where the bonding began to happen was around our shared critique, yeah. which was great. I, I love the words recognizing ourselves. The, I, the, so we are moving around in the numbers, but that's okay. If we have to pick some others up, we can. And, um, the, number five, uh, if the work's about completion, not conversion. So for somebody um, like myself, who my heritage is kind of, well, my heritage is like Anabaptist, Mennonite, Christian Christian tradition. 
but that was like my grandparents. I was there, but for me, it was you know Baptist Church and Plymouth Brethren Church, quite conservative um, parts of Christian uh, Protestantism. And there certainly was an element. I always tended to push against it, but it was it was certainly part of the understanding that other faiths were mission fields. That was that was about it, right? That this was so. When you say uh, completion, not conversion, this is a key point. I would imagine for each of you that. Uh, domination by violence, domination by any kind of triumphalist understanding. But then these concepts of the other is someone to just, you know, become like me, is that I would imagine a fundamental place where you're doing some of your work in terms of your own faith traditions, helping people to see something better than that. You know, you know, uh, uh, mystics always tell this story, which I repeat again and again and again and again, really for myself, about a very sincere, pious monkey who goes to neighborhood ponds and lakes to pluck the fish out of water to save it from a watery grave. Now that I've been asked to ponder on again and again and again and again to understand the dangers of sharing the good news, which is very strong in Christianity and in Islam also. Ah. And it is, a, it is a very strong point about how do we overcome this in really having genuine interfaith connections? Am I connecting with the other with a secret aspiration to convert the other? Mm-hmm. Or really, I want to know more about that person. Mm. Uh, so this is a very important point that to talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah. Uh, why are we doing interfaith? So I've, ta- I've talked to some Muslims, for example, um, and they say that, no, no, what happens is, of course, I would like them to become Muslims. Uh, but when we do interfaith, I tell myself and my congregation members not to see this as an opportunity for proselytizing, yeah. converting the other. And what happens usually is this, Todd, people who even want to proselytize secretly, once they get to know the other, that urge, that impulse organically diminishes. I've heard this again yeah. and again and again. I've heard about evangelical Christians going to Oman uh, in yeah. an Arab country called Oman. Yeah. They found the people there so hospitable, so loving, and they've stayed there for a long time. And these students told me, these people were missionaries, they stopped missionizing. Yeah. They said, don't change. <laughs> I want you to be how you are. But when you get to know the other, that impulse does go down. I feel. Yeah, it's, um, and then that becomes such an engine to consideration of one's own, the, the theological depth of one's own understanding of, of their faith tradition, right? That can, I would argue, become much more healing, much more expansive, much more open to the other, all of these kinds of things that those constructions we talked about don't hold, right? Right. I think, too, the, there's a psychological um, thread here which is if somebody agrees if i if i'm trying to convert somebody and that person agrees then that makes me think that what i'm doing is good my you know i have the right point of view and it it pertains to self-esteem which is a huge thing among any i mean among the whole population of the world um and so um that i think i think we've got to put that aside and get to the place where we can not only appreciate the differences 
but give thanks for them for the ways in which they help us to understand not just ourselves but the you know the other the other uh, period um and i'm not just tolerant you know tolerance yeah. i heard uh, someone once say tolerance is cold violence <laughs> you know there's a separation there we don't we're not looking for tolerance we're looking for genuine appreciation and thanksgiving for the differences that help us to understand ourselves to grow and to contribute better to the common good i love how you say that the i think i also when when i was reading the six um steps i also thought of i think it was popularized in a barbara brown taylor book not that long ago um christer stendhal's uh, three rules for religious engagement or something and it's interfaith religious engagement and one they're, they're all good but one really stayed with me one is don't compare your best to their worst <laughs> um that that i and when we watch even politically right now right you watch how the right treats the left or the left treats the right just setting up kind of the most ridiculous characters that are so easy to find now right but i would imagine that this is something too that that we we um we compare ourselves or think of our, if, if we're have this dominated by fear to a character of the other, rather than engaging with the other or to their worst, uh, comparing their worst to our best. Right. Uh, you must've seen this as well. I think Rabbi Laura wanted to say something. Uh, oh, Rabbi Laura, go ahead. I did, but it's one point back. Go, cool. go one point back. We're but I, I'll figure out how to relate it to the oh, but we more can also recent edit, point so too. Go for it. I wanted to pick up a theological thread here. And some religious traditions have an exclusivist perspective, that is, our understanding of God and God's relationship to human beings and the relationship of human beings to creation. Ours is the right one. And yeah, other people have theirs, but they are misguided and they are yeah, confused yes. and they are bumbling through the world. And people raised with this kind of a tradition often worry that the only alternative to it is a flattening universalist kind of perspective. Down, yeah, where, yeah. Right, exactly. All religions are the same. We suck out all the life and the art and the stories and we'll come to this bland universalism. Uh, however, that's not true. There is a huge spectrum of approaches and perspectives in there, including one that is a very simple starting point, which we might call pluralism, which is somehow the human world has endured for thousands and thousands of years with different religious traditions and different ways of approaching God and humanity and the non-human world. And there is something to be gained by simply listening and learning about them with an open heart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to, to be gained for our own, like, emotional well-being and all those other good things, right? That, yeah, absolutely. Do you guys think I'm interested in this, this particular moment in time? You would have known this in your own faith communities and traditions, um, as much as as uh, we're religious leaders and have communities of people who listen to us, um, this is a time, you know, pandemic and political polarization and all kinds of things that um, dissent in the way people would think back into 
uh, armed conflict in, in Europe and all these types of things, that people have um, kind of a pessimism and that pessimism then can affect, infect so many different things. This particular moment, so you, you were, this Interfaith Amigos came to be post 9-11, but here we are all these years later at another moment. Um, you must feel that what you're doing has a particular uh, resonance and need right now. How do you feel that personally or in terms of how does it motivate your work? You know, I would say for myself, I feel the great need is in really sharing, should I call it spiritual practices from different traditions to become a more, as we said, a better developed human being. We might be less religious, more secular, angry at the institution of religion, but we all want to become more loving, more forgiving, more compassionate, to be able to manage our anger, uh, be less jealous. How do we do that? Call it whatever you will, psychological practices, sociological practices. I don't know what you call that. To me, it's all spiritual practices. And every religion has beautiful practices that really help us to do that. And people are of different personalities. You know, some people want something intellectual. You know, the Hindus would call it Gana Yoga. Some people want it devotional, like Hindus would say, bhakti yoga. Some would say, no, I just want to be of service. Okay, that's karma yoga. Some will do just psycho-spiritual exercises. That's uh, uh, raja yoga. I mean, so you can really, according to your personality, you can choose different practices, which we are very adept in telling others how to do it, but not doing it ourselves. But that is the key to learn from the religious tradition or whatever you call that, practices that really make me more Christ-like, Buddha-like, Elohim-like, Allah-like. Without that work, there can be no fundamental structural change, I feel. But people are, um, people are very receptive to the work you're doing, from what I see in here. People are very grateful, right? So for such a time as this. I think that they're, I mean, I think that most of the people who come to hear us or have come to hear us have a predisposition yeah, sure. to being, you know, to to being open to the new, not just spiritually but aesthetically. Um, I mean, I think I think we're in some ways still looking for the things that can penetrate or eclipse the ego, which is a. I mean, we need egos obviously to help manage our lives, but. But the ego doesn't contribute to uh, an openness to the common good and to the concerns of the other and to God. But there are things that can penetrate that, things like music, poetry, spiritual practices. Chocolate, yeah. Chocolate. <laughs> Chocolate, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my wife and I saw the the, the opera um, the magic flute over the weekend and discovered in a commentary that in Mozart's time, 1791, there was a sense that music could help create new ways of thinking about culture. Oh, what a concept, you know, and, um, and I think that's true. I think, but I think as, as Jamal often says in the Quran, it says move from a knowledge of the tongue to a knowledge of the heart. Mm. And uh, my, 
uh, theological education was so exclusively intellectual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my soul is not. Yes. So I had a difficulty. Um, and I still do. I mean, I think it's important to combine uh, the knowledge of the, uh, critical thinking with um, with things that evoke feelings for the other that are positive and contribute to the common good. Yeah. I was, um, have you guys heard of Dr. Keltner? He's a, oh, what am I going to say? Anyway, uh, and all the like positive psychology stuff that the Seligman and all the, and he's this, where is he in California somewhere or something, I think, but his work's quite popular, um, but quite in-depth as well. His most recent book is called Awe, and he, um, they did this huge study cross-culturally, thousands of people, all this, and there's eight things that occasion awe that they find even all across cultures. And, and the number one thing was quite surprising to them, to the researchers, and it was true across cultures, across faith traditions. The number one thing was not religion or music, or they were all on there, like spirituality, music, epiphanies, life and death was on there, but the number one thing was um, other people. Other people doing courageous acts, other people sometimes in suffering, other people in uh, overcoming. This is what occasioned awe in, in, in our hearts. And when I see your work, um, you're helping us to see the other so that we could be open to this kind of thing when, you know, so often we're, we're not even considering these kinds of interactions, right? Uh, Rabbi Laura, you had something to say before? Yeah, I think... This is actually a very good time in history for interfaith, and particularly Mm. interfaith work with an emphasis on spirituality and spiritual practice. At least in North America, people are leaving organized religion and religious institutions in very large numbers, and they are driven away by the exclusivism They are driven away by the harms they see that have not been acknowledged by those institutions. And they're also driven away by some religious institutions' insistence on co-opting religion as either a way to make money or a way to... Uh, draw people into political causes that uh, they don't see as really related to their spiritual lives. And so people are leaving and they're defining themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And interfaith speaks into this community and this desire for a spirituality that is not rigid. And to that end, we will be doing some work this summer with the Charter for Compassion, which very much attracts a spiritual but not necessarily ah. religious audience. And it's huge. Beautiful. Another, another critical point I'd like to make, if I may. Of wait, course, wait. yeah, yeah. I'll go back to the Charter. Yeah. We, everybody's clamoring, and especially after the pandemic, for authentic community. And we can define it any way we want to. But what I really also wanted to say was there is another movement within that that critical need for authentic community to ask ourselves, what is authentic community? Does it have to be people from my same tribe Mm -hmm. or can be people outside my tribe? 
You see, the 13th century Rumi, he said, real community is not based on outer reality, same religion, same culture, same color. It is actually based on inner reality, a kinship of spirit. And this movement is already happening among Muslims who have come to the West in America. Uh, a recent polling, just a few years ago, uh, a polling asked Muslims, who is your best friend? You really trust real community. Well over 40% surprisingly said, it's not a Muslim, yeah. it's a non-Muslim. But with, with whom they had a kinship of spirit, there was that inner connection. So great. That bring community together. But we all need community. And as we get older, we need spiritual community to grow together, to help one another, to help to be vulnerable with one another, to comfort, console, advise, guide, and really be of authentic service to one another. It's so beautiful. I'm so grateful for you guys taking the time to speak. And I, I knew this already in doing a bit of um, looking into your work. The things I pick up um, are, well, from all three of you, wisdom that is needed in the world, clearly. Many of the points I hear you making, I just find myself resonating, going, oh, I, I need to hear that. Um, uh, Reverend Don, your point on like self-esteem and lack thereof and how that motivates some of our religious misunderstanding or our fear. Um, so that wisdom from all three of you, but then this even more, and it goes back to that friendship note, the hospitable nature of your joy in doing this work, which I find is so hopeful, um, clearly you do too, for beyond here, beyond conversations like that, that this this little thing, you know, and all of our things are these little things, right, um, is so necessary right now, but it's also a joy to be part of it. And so I picked that up, and I really uh, I say thank you for your work. We'll stay connected. Uh, Rabbi Laura, tell, tell us a little bit more before we end about the Charter for Compassion. I would actually defer to Jamal on that okay. one, because he's got the longest relationship with the group. Okay, thank you. Yeah. It really uh, has its roots in this TED Talk that uh, Karn Armstrong Mm-hmm. She spoke about that, that the great need for compassion, which is an integral part of every single religion. But how can we, besides talking about it, live it? And that is the, you might say, the, the root of this world, this global organization called Charter for Compassion. How can we be compassionate with ourselves and with others? And through that, infuse every one of our social projects, social justice issues, earth care with Mercy, gentleness, compassion for ourselves and with others. It's a global movement. That's fantastic. Well, bless you in the work. So, so the three of you will be doing work on that together? We'll be attending yes. the World Parliament of Religions, which is oh, uh, affiliated with the Charter for Compassion. They collaborate. And yes, we shall be uh, very involved with the Charter for Compassion. Oh, wonderful. So we'll put links um, on how people can follow these guys and that work and everything else. And we hope to engage with you more. I know that Vancouver is a place that you guys have um, been many times. And of course, Rabbi Laura is here in Vancouver, so there'll be lots of occasion to uh, be here in person. So thanks so much for taking the time and bless you. Blessings in this um, important but joyful work. 
Uh, glad you. to be connected even in this way. Thank you so and much. Charter for Compassion has this beautiful website, www.charterforcompassion. www.charterforcompassion.com, I'm assuming. We'll find it. Thank you I mean, so much. Thanks for having us, Todd. Thank you so yeah, much. Blessings. You. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.